Now, if you two don't mind, I'm going to bed before either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed. Or worse, expelled. She needs to sort out her priorities. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I've got a strange sinking feeling as we wrap up this week of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 72, which begins with Max and the others finding Mr. Skyfish's kite, and it ends with Screwloose grasping at the short end of the proverbial and some could say literal stick. Aww. Wrapping up this week with us is everybody's favorite nomad duo, Gary Roby and Victoria Cope from the Harry Potter Minute. Hello, hello. Hi. I hope you don't mind I used the American nomenclature for non-magical people. I thought about protesting (laughs) it, but like, we are in California, so. (laughs) (laughs) Do you honestly believe that the California dwelling wizarding community would not come up with an even more obnoxious name for non-magical folk? Oh my god, you're so right. Yeah, for sure. We're gonna have to think about this, and we'll come back to it. Regional slang is regional. It wouldn't just be like, oh, like no magic everywhere across the everywhere. Yeah, no way, no way. Like the South would have their thing, Uh and then like California would have their. England is a fairly small place compared to somewhere like California. Yeah, and everyone in that region has their own slang so it stands to reason everyone on the west coast would have their word for it you know you'd have your tupac wizarding crowd and then over <laughs> on the east coast they'd have a different word for the biggie crowd exactly sure and you'd have these cross coastal wizard conferences where they'd be using all these different slang terms and being all different we're just gonna do this tangent anyway uh I, this is gonna keep happening i w- i was thinking about like what spells and magic casting is like in different places like we briefly talked about like australian wizards but like mm-hmm. i'm sure that the the way that the like australian wizards or like or aboriginal ones would like cast their spells would be vastly different from the way that it's taught at like hogwarts and if the way magic is used is different regionally as well, then like maybe even like the terms used for spell casting changes. The spells of Hogwarts are very Latin based, but that doesn't necessarily mean like if it's more to do with the intention than the actual word said, mm-hmm. then even the spell names could be different. And then you just get a lot of surfer slang and stuff. In the lead up to Fantastic Beasts, J.K. Rowling came out and talked about Native American wizards and how they were really good with wandless magic. Yep. When the subject of Aussie wizards came up on the Harry Potter listeners army page Mm -hmm. on Facebook and I made a comment about, oh, we need more Aussie wizards. Obviously, the Anglo wizards would have the same spell casting, but the Aboriginal wizards, I feel like their method of casting would be very, I want to say singing based. Oh, I'm sure. Back when we were doing Hiatus, we watched Where the Green Ants Dream. And in that depiction of the Aborigines, they have very specific group singing activities and they have very specific dances they do and they're very location and direction based so i imagine that an aborigine wizard instead of saying a phrase that sounds latiny they'd probably sing something yeah i'm i'm really fascinated to see like there have been there's been a lot of talk 
that the character of Nicholas Flamel is going to be introduced in the next Fantastic Beasts movie that comes out later this year. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, he's referred to as an alchemist. And so I really, really hope that that means that the magic he uses is different than what we've seen before. Oh, but I don't I know if they're going to go that far. But I, I imagine Nicholas that Flamel like... Nicholas shows up and he just has a bunch of tiny little glass bottles. Yes! And those are oh, his spells. Be so cool. Be so cool. Should give him I know a Chewbacca-style bandolier. Yeah, I think that they take... I think there's an alchemy class at Hogwarts you can take, but I don't know if it's like, I don't know how extensive it is. Mm-hmm. Whereas he's referred to as an alchemist. Like that seems like a very different thing. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The <laughs> fact that he's one of the alchemist group instead of the singular alchemist. Yeah. Well, yeah. alchemy in our world, in the muggle world, alchemy is specifically the quote unquote science of creating the philosopher's stone and- I it a lot of it is like transmutation of materials and the Philosopher's Stone seems to be like the epitome of that. But uh, a lot of other sorts of like transmutation and stuff and things like that get like tied back to it. Mm-hmm. OK, I know that. Um. Oh, my goodness. Isaac Newton, uh, even though he like invented calculus and did all this other like <laughs> theory of gravity. And but he was also really fascinated with like alchemy and he he used it to like make predictions about like when the world was going to end. Yeah, Newton was famously weird. Yeah, and I just it's fascinating to me. I think it's so cool. I really do hope that we see like something different, like magic used in a way we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that the wizarding world would look at like what Papagallo and the compound dwellers were doing, pulling crude out of the ground and transmuting it into usable fuel they'd probably look at that and say oh yeah that's alchemy yeah yep even though it's done with science and not magic there was a it's it's interesting alchemy is from a time where that like the lines between that was those were really blurred right we were figuring out what was science like it was still being defined Mm -hmm. yeah elements were still being defined and the very concept of science and things we would describe now as magical were still being separated. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like famous Australian Chris Hemsworth said as Thor. Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same thing. Yeah. I keep trying yeah. to make quick little connections back to Australia to keep a hold of our regular <laughs> listeners, who I'm That's- sure are <laughs> just fascinated to no end by all this Harry Potter talk. <laughs> Just, we just carry it with us. It's it's hard to it's hard to separate. Exactly. Speaking of separating, we start off today's minute with the searchers following a set of tracks, and these are the tracks that I mentioned at the tail end of yesterday's minute that make up the first quarter of this minute. Yeah. These tracks are supposed to be the tracks left behind by a crawling gecko, but instead of having the whole thing where they find gecko and give him water and everything we cut straight to a shot of mr skyfish's kite seen flying high above the dunes this detail of them finding the kite is also included in the storybook as they're walking along while dragging gecko tubba is the one that finds the kite and they make a beeline for it because it's very obvious that at the end of that kite string is skyfish because skyfish is the wind kite dude i know practically the kite is up in the air because Mr. Skyfish, his hands are busy doing something else. So of course, if he wasn't already flying the kite, which why wouldn't you? If Even if he was carrying it, he would no longer be carrying it because something else has taken his attention. But yeah. I like to think that 
he let it go up and fly as a signal to anybody who might be nearby out looking for them that, hey, we are right here. We want to be found now. Please come yeah. find us. We are in trouble. Please we help. need help. Yeah. yeah. As an SOS. Yes. Yeah. That's clever. When I initially thought of it, I thought it was an example of their naivete. The fact that Skyfish would be out there, he'd be like, oh, we've got a good wind. I'll let the kite up and let the kite fly. And just caring not at all that they might be attracting a poor amount of attention because they're ill-equipped to deal with strangers. Mm. But I like the idea that it's used specifically as a call for help. It makes a lot of sense. That also makes me wonder, were they expecting somebody to come after them? Mm, It's very low chances. Mm -hmm. What did they think was going on back at camp? Do you think that it was helpless that they were just, they left and no one was going to care? This is a terrible way for all these kids to go. I don't think they expected help to come from the waiting ones. I think they considered themselves on their own. And if the kite was sent up intentionally as an SOS, they were just doing it in the hopes that someone... Just anyone might be out there. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of using a kite to attract attention. And it got me thinking about... And this is just how my mind works as far as Mm. tangents are concerned. There is a movie from Peter Jackson coming out in December called Mortal Engines. And it is a post-apocalyptic story about the human race have survived an apocalyptic episode that only lasted for about an hour, but it decimated the entire planet. And now cities exist by being built upon these giant cars. So it's cities driving around the world, eating up smaller cities as they go. And I got thinking about that and I thought, oh, how cool would it be? And this is like a potential Mad Max story. You have out in the wasteland a caravan or a trading station or something large and imposing like you would see in the Mortal Engines just out in the wasteland rolling along. And Max just comes across it. And, oh, hey, it's this caravan slash trading outpost type of situation. And maybe they have a fancy gimmick for how they're able to stay moving. Yeah. But he could get involved and mixed up with them. And it would probably be a pretty interesting story. That would be really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think it'd be pretty awesome. Because train sequences are pretty cool. Anyone who likes Snowpiercer will agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be really cool if you had a land-based caravan train that shenanigans would happen on in and around right you'd have that inevitable like big chase sequence that would happen yeah at some point be so good i'd be into that i would watch the hell out of that absolutely granted i'd watch the hell out of any mad max content yeah (laughs) do you know are they working are they working on like whatever the follow-up to fury road is gonna be oh they're held up in court Oh, no. Warner Brothers and George Miller are having a disagreement, and oh, it's no. just not very clear as to who is on the correct side at this point. I'm siding with George Miller against the giant studio, but sure. that's not everyone's opinion, so I just hope that it gets resolved so that we can eventually get something beyond Fury Road. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I have my fingers crossed. I think it's funny that after Fury Road, it seems like there's like this influx of like Mad Max being on people's minds, and then you get all these spoofs all of a sudden. Like, Rick and Morty had an episode in which it's all very Mad Max. Well, Mm -hmm. there was, like, such a huge gap between this one and Fury Road. And then, what, the trailer for the Lego movie just came out, and it looks very, it looks very Barter Town and and Mad Max. I didn't even think about that. uh, In the beginning of that trailer. So I'm just like, what the heck? Why is, this is funny. I like it. 
I think yeah. it's great. That's because it's, think it's, it's kind of returned Ma- the yeah, Mad Max franchise like into like, like this is the pop con- the culture consciousness. Well, it's like they took the teen dystopian stuff that they've already been kind of like burning and like like yeah. the ground uh-huh. and being like, let's make this more adult again and yep. just and get away from the young adult stuff and just make it like hardcore. Yeah, we've been going back to that well so often with the zombie post-apocalypses and yeah. the teenagers are important post-apocalypses. We need to get back to the engine-based post-apocalypses where everything is brown and everyone has guns. And that's yeah. actually <laughs> kind of why I'm looking forward to the Mortal Engines because it so there are yeah. just yeah. so many cool vehicles. Yeah. I yeah, remember yeah. I saw the trailer for that and I was just like, Whoa. this looks so red. <laughs> this is awesome. I, I kind of want to read those books. Like we have them at the bookstore I work at and I, I have not bothered to pick them up. Oh. <laughs> I went that's out and I looked on Amazon and I know Gary, you working at a, brick and mortar bookstore you probably hate the mention of that company but i don't have any good small bookstores that i know of close by otherwise i would just go there but i seriously considered just ordering the books so i could read up on it but then i remembered my rule of thumb (laughs) so you always watch the movie first read the book second because you're going to get more out of the book. Yep. It's so funny because, like, for a long time, I was of the other opinion. Like, growing up reading, like, being such a voracious reader, I was always of the, like, no, you got to read the book first. But, like, that yeah, always leads same. to dissatisfaction. Yeah. Always. Mm-hmm. No, I was the same it's Like, way. why would you purposely disappoint yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Even even for recent movies, like like when Gone Girl came out, mm. I went and I read the book before I saw the movie. Yeah, but I, I mean that that's that's very close. Actually. I think if you so I think if fun. you do it the other way around, it's just like oh like here's what the movie is like. Let me go like dig into this world further. Yeah, exactly. It's like enjoying Lord of the Rings and then checking out Silmarillion. Like you're just kind of pulling in more <laughs> of the world building <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think if I had seen the Harry Potter movies before I ever read the books, I think I would be a bigger fan of the movies than I am. Sure. But I read the books first and was a big, huge fan of the books. So I felt a little disappointed by the movies. Yeah, it's been a little while since I've gone back and read the later books. And so like for me, because it's a lot easier to like throw the movies on than to like go back and reread right now. Um, the, the movies have become a little bit more commonplace. And uh, very often we'll get people that'll be like, well, in the book, it says like this. And I'm like, well, yes, yes. But we also are scrutinizing this minute by minute. And we have to take what's in the film, you know? Right, right. You're and not so analyzing there's, there's the a books, you're analyzing the movies. Tightrope walk that we do. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Besides, oftentimes you watch the movie, you get a lot out of it, and then you go back and read the book and you discover just so much it's, more Yeah, you get it. a little bit more of that richness rather yeah. than doing the other way around and just being like dissatisfied by like, oh, why did they include this? And oh, they changed that guy. Yeah. Like in the book version of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, you get the story of where Gecko went. Yeah. And what happened to him. And here it's just sadness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the book being more informative than the movie. And back on Wednesday, I mentioned that there would be clues that the Gecko death thing was originally included in the movie. As we have this shot. After the kite, we go down, we see Max and the others running towards the levers, and then we pan over, see the levers on the dune and whatnot. You can see over the edge of the dune that Eddie, Anna, and Tubba are jogging towards the levers. Max is back there, a little bit further back, and both of his arms are down by his side, and he's walking a little slower as if he's pulling something. Oh. So there is visual confirmation that at one point they had in the shot of this movie, Max 
pulling Gecko. Interesting. Like it absolutely happened. Yeah. And then of course we pan over and we're focused more on Skyfish who's holding on to Kusha, who's holding on to a stick and Screwloose is holding on to the other end of that stick and he's holding on to Savannah's leg and she's got a piece of fabric that Finn is holding on to and Finn Aww. is armpit deep in quicksand and barely hanging on and he's Aww. shouting help help me. It makes me so sad. Well yeah yeah <laughs> as <Yeah>. it should. <laughs> Let me tell you like because this movie seemed so much like it, it didn't seem as like kind of punishing and unforgiving as the last one did. Mm-hmm. I, I just especially having him interact with kids. I definitely thought like, oh, like he's going to come out here and save everybody. And like this movie's going to like it feels lighter hearted. And then and then and then it's not. And it's <laughs> I was just they don't even like draw like too much attention to it next week. I don't think it's just like, oh, he's gone now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just a thing that happens. I know. I know. And like, and like, because there's no, because the movie just has to keep going. There's no like moment there to really like take that, like to grieve it. And, and I just, I I felt so like crushed just in the middle of like, oh my God, that kid is gone. Yeah. And it's awful because you're sitting there and you can hear him Uh crying Uh and pleading for his life. And there's added flavor text because and this is not something that they made a big deal of in the movie oh no but finn is savannah's son (gasps) so savannah is holding on for dear life to the end of this piece of fabric because at the other end is her child that's hardcore (laughs) yeah i why did you have to make this worse (laughs) well it was already pretty bad, especially I, when you yeah. consider that the only reason Finn is there is because Savannah was the one who decided to leave. That sucks. And so Savannah's actions and decisions directly lead to Finn being in this situation. <sighs> this poor kid. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> yes, that's, that's, would not wish that on anyone. No, this is a downer situation, you guys. <laughs> it really is. We've talked before about their views on parenthood. We don't think they see the roles of mother and father the same way that our modern society does. Sure. That, I mean, that makes sense because they're more of a like, they're more of a like tribal society anyway. And typically when you have like smaller groups of bands, like, raising children becomes the responsibility of like the group at large. And so there isn't really that like same distinction you get today of like mom, dad, and the kids like in their house with their, you know, family structure, uh, nomadic groups and like early, early tribal civilizations, um, were really more communal, uh, in that, in that sort of way. Right. And a lot of the kids that we see in the community as a whole are quite young. Yeah. Maybe five, six, seven. Mm -hmm. With no parents around. Nobody who is left is old enough to have kids of this age. Except Savannah, who is Finn's mother. And there is a toddler that's mentioned in the book that is a, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. It is uh, Kusha's kid. Who is the pregnant one. Yeah. So she's about to have her second. But other than that, I don't think there's really any parents among them. All the parents have taken their leaving. So they have left behind their young children to be raised by the group as a whole. Do you think that this is a pattern that's going to continue? Like 
once the oldest children grow up to that certain age where they decide to leave and and you just have this band of kids that are just responsible for raising the younger ones like it just just perpetuating itself yes that's exactly what we think would happen if max didn't come in and ruin everything <laughs> and to take it a step further we theorize that that's not a sustainable method and that eventually this tribe would peter out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You need the adults to stick around long enough to have more than one kid. Yeah. They need to, oh, there's a term. Uh, it kind of goes along with the idea of zero population growth. Yeah. They are having negative population growth. If they want to have a tribe, they need to have positive population growth. So a pair needs to have at least two kids, if not more. Before they leave. Before they leave in order to yeah. sustain this community. Yeah. Which they're not doing. They're not. No. Have either of you guys played uh, any of the Fallout video games? Oh, oh absolutely. Yes. This totally makes me think of in Fallout 3, there's a group uh, in a town called Little Lamplight. Yep. And and essentially, like, <laughs> once the kids reach a certain age, they're sort of outed to go to, like, big town. And so the kids just run themselves. And this is absolutely what this makes me think of. I love that as we're talking about the tribe and, and how it works with our various guests from week to week, everybody brings up Little Lamplight. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Especially which is the, the post-apocalyptic, like, kids fending for themselves sort of thing. Like, I feel like just, mm -hmm. it's hard not to make that direct correlation. Yeah, but nobody ever brings up Children of the Corn. Well, that's <laughs> a much like more sinister version thing. of this. Children of the Corn, that's not the adults leaving of their own free will. The Children of yeah. the Corn murder the adults. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's It's a true. different situation. That's, that's why that's no one different. brings it up. <laughs> We're not looking for... Well, that is my chosen comparison. Okay. Speaking of children in a post-apocalyptic setting, in the trailer for the Lego movie, Ooh. at one point, Emmett is walking down the road, a sewer grate pops open, and sewer yeah, babies... <gasps> Hop out babies. and walk across oh, his yeah. path, and he's like, "Good morning, sewer babies." <laughs> oh no! I love it. They, they all got oh, like. There's a lot of really funny them. stuff in that trailer. I'm so excited for that movie. Oh man! No, my, <laughs> yeah, my husband really is good. so looking forward to like the the possible sets that are going to be made. Oh yeah, of like that post-apocalyptic like world. He's That's totally his. Oh yeah, things. yeah. Like you can get a pack of ten sewer babies. Oh, oh can I get a pack of sewer babies, please? <laughs> like, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I'm hoping that they do another release of like like the minifigures that are just in those little blind bags and just like just mm -hmm. so I can have all the characters. That's your go-to. Oh, always those blind bags. Those yep, everything. Blind yeah, it was just so much bags, fun. All of that stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the set that includes the larger version of Unikitty. Yeah, from the trailer, oh my where gosh, she's, like just larger and more saber tooth. Yes. sized it's gonna be really fun <laughs> when does that come out oh sometime i think february 2019 oh okay so we still got a while that. that's great yeah i'm really looking forward to it i have literally every set from the first uh that doesn't surprise me speaking of looking at things in the shot where max drops his water and breaks into a sprint yeah it's quick but if you look behind max at anna and tubba you can see that they're dragging gecko's litter oh so he's still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can They're totally really tell. clever with their editing, but he's still there. 
Oh, hmm. they saved him. I have a quick question about their location. Okay. So obviously we have seen a sinkhole in the sand before. Is this the same sinkhole? Ooh. I want to say yes. You think so? I want to say that there's a horse down there. <laughs> well, Aww. okay. That's really gruesome then because not only is Finn going to die by suffocation under the sand, he's going to do so like laying on top of a decomposing horse. Brutal. Yep. That's really gross. <laughs> and that's the first time I actually thought about Finn suffocating under the sand. Yeah. That's well, it's brutal. Crap. Yep. So we actually got to talk to the actor who plays Finn McCoo, Adam Skoogle, mm. and he explained how they did this gag. So what I'll do is I'll cut out the audio from that part of the interview we had with him, and I'll throw it into this section here so we can have him explain how he did it. Nice. <laughs> There's one scene in particular that I wanted to ask you about, and that's the scene in which your character gets sucked into quicksand. And I am very curious to know how that was pulled off, because it looks like you're going right into the sand to never be seen again. Yeah, actually, um, that was a bit of a bit of a trial to go through that, because we had um, there was like a big hole sort of carved out in in the sand, and then they had a machine in the bottom of the thing with like a plinth and I would have to stand on the plinth mm -hmm. and then they also had, you know, a layer around me, like a, a false sort of floor again around my sort of just under my arms and there was like a latex, there was a hole in that with latex around it so I could sort of be moved up on this plinth through that hole and back down if that makes sense and they put all this sort of fake sand, it wasn't real sand, it was very, very lightweight sort of, I think it was latex or something, these tiny, 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 I mean, it looked like sand. But that was around me, covering me up. And then it was just a process of going down and coming back up, going down. And we did it over and over again. And they probably got, they probably used the take where I actually screamed out that I wasn't ready. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this bloody sand went into my mouth and I was choking and George Miller sort of pulled me aside because I had a bit of a meltdown um, and had a bit of a cry because it was um, I couldn't breathe. And that's probably the one they used. So it was quite effective to see me actually nearly nearly passing out as I'm going through there. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> it does lend some authenticity. George Miller was lovely as a director. He was a very lovely person. He was just, just fantastic and but uh, yeah, after that scene, I kind of was crying and carrying on. And he sort of said, oh, you know, you okay? You know, is everything okay? And we had people come over and yeah, but um, that's how it worked. I, I was in this sort of little, on this plinth that moved me up and down out of this top layer and that, that's sort of the way it worked. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, there were people underneath the room too. So they would, they would if I got, because it was, you'd get stuck and then they'd have to pull you um, I'm sure things are a lot different now, 30, what is it, 34 years later? Um, <laughs> but at the time, that was the process. So I had two guys under there and they were sort of pushing me up if I needed to push and pulling me down if I needed to be pulled down. And so it was a, uh, it was an experience. So that's how they do that whole effect. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. And it definitely sells the effect. I'm always such a fan of like clever practical effect work like this. He goes from being armpit deep 
to just his head poking above the sand. And as this minute goes on, he just sinks further and further down. Like we get several shots in a row, all within a quick 10 second span of time where we see Savannah struggling and Screwloose struggling. Kush is up there struggling to hold on. Skyfish again. And this whole time Max is running full bore Mm -hmm. towards them, just trying to get to this kid as fast as he can. It's kind of reminiscent of the end of the first movie. Oh, crap. Seriously? Say, did you want to get even more sad? (sighs) Yeah, let's just bring us down another notch. Because at the end of the first movie, when Max's wife and child are run down by the motorcycle gang, Max was not there. He had to run to catch up to them. And so he's in another situation where he's running to try and save a small child. Oh, no. And that child's mother. Oh, no. So this is him reliving that traumatic thing as well. It's amazing. And maybe it's because, like, these movies don't really, like, play out that way. But it's amazing that we don't spend any time with, like, how something like this affects Max. It's like he's a stone wall. And it's all just... Well, stuff's bad in the apocalypse, and he's just gonna make do and move on, and, like, it just sort of washes over him like like water. It takes us all the way until Fury Road before we actually start seeing Max crack. Yeah. Do you think that that's a product of the time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's something that, like, storytellers seem more interested in, like, getting, like, even more into the heads of their characters now in the, like, how does this affect the mental psyche of this character or like what choices is this character going to make differently because of the things that they've lived through we're definitely more interested in that nowadays yeah like in 2015 as opposed to 1985 where it was like yeah we're in the throes of oz exploitation yep it's just like well you know stuff's bad yeah <laughs> kid dies yeah whatever let's keep moving that type <laughs> gotta of gotta keep going but yeah the end of this week is tragedy to the extreme because <laughs> Finn is getting sucked under the sand. Savannah is struggling to hold on to him because he is her only child. Max is reliving the trauma of chasing after a woman and a little kid who are dying more or less actively. If this were a soap opera, Kusha would go into labor right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just for dramatics. I'm actually surprised she doesn't because <laughs> this whole situation is very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us here for this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Our pleasure. We're (laughs) so glad that we could have you guys on to help get us through this. Honestly, think about the story that you guys are coming from. Bad things happen to kids all the time. Oh, my gosh. We have been in this space lately in where where we are recording for season two. Um, It's all finished by the point that people are hearing this. But, like, talking about what it's like for Voldemort to be like possessing the body of Ginny Weasley and what it's like to like split his soul in half through murder. And like, it's so easy to like forget that stuff is really, really dark in Harry Potter. Sometimes it's just kind of glossed over in the movies in a way that like, you don't have time to really consider like just how horrifying some of this magic is. Yeah, when your first movie more or less begins with, oh, hey, here's this baby. Yeah. Its parents were murdered in front of it. (laughs) Yep. Have fun with your magic adventure, kids. We literally see a flashback of, like, the baby Harry crying as his mother's murdered in front of his eyes. And we don't even really, like, deal with the repercussions of that. It's like the prologue of Hunchback of Notre Dame all over again. Oh, no. 
How does Harry not grow up to be like a magical Dexter? He's so <laughs> afraid that he's going to go bad. He spends so much time worrying that like maybe he actually is the heir of Slytherin. Like they sort of they sort of touch on it, but like it's not given the weight that I think it deserves sometimes. Right. Mm. And that is a direct parallel to Max. Yeah. In the first movie, he quits the MFP specifically because he is afraid of becoming as bad or as violent or as aggressive as the biker gangs that he is fighting. Mm. And he worries about the type of person that he is going to become if he keeps going along this path. Yeah. So he removes himself from the path, but it doesn't work. Like mm-hmm. the path finds him again yeah. and forces him back on that path. And a difference between Max and Harry is that Max, he embraced that path in the end. Yeah. And he spends the next three movies like being a wastelander, doing what it takes to survive. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes he risks his life to save children. But other times it's not so good. Mm -hmm. Other times he makes deals to kill a stranger so that he can get his mode of transportation back. Yeah. You know, he's morally malleable. Yeah. Sometimes you got to do what it takes. I keep thinking about the new Solo movie that just came out and how like young Han seems like he wants to be this doesn't care about anybody is willing to pull scams to like get what he needs. And yet like there's still a soft spot that keeps kind of pushing him to like help these people that are in need. Exactly. When it comes down to brass tacks, he does what's right. Max is a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy. Just wants to help. And I think we like that in our protagonists. Yeah. We don't want them to be perfect. We want them to be flawed so that we can compare ourselves to them because we're our own worst critics. We know we're not perfect people. Well, that's the thing is like, if you have a character that is just always great and always perfect and always makes the right decision, there's nothing interesting in that. Because like- Nobody's like that. You can't identify yourself with that character. But if that character is flawed, if that character has like things that they have to overcome, if they have to like sacrifice something because they know it's for like a greater good. It's why I've always loved like I, I we're gonna I don't mean to like reference something totally different, but it's kind of like why I love characters like Spider-Man so much. The like great power uh, breeds great responsibility sort of idea of like I would love to just be a kid and live my life and go to the academic decathlon or whatever, but like someone's in danger. And if I don't help them, that's on me. Yeah. And I think Max falls into that category as well, that he has abilities and he has experiences that allow him to help in this situation. And it's at his own risk. He could die out there with the rest of them. We don't see how they stumbled upon the situation, but I imagine they were just walking along and Finn maybe slid down the dune before anybody else and just went right into the sand. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't any fault of his own. Awful. He wasn't doing anything foolish. He was just walking along. And that could easily be any of them. And it could easily be Max. But he went out there anyways. There's no way to know that like the sand, that the, the ground beneath your feet isn't stable. Can I cut in real quick since we started talking about sand? Yeah. 
I don't appreciate that this movie reinforces the stereotype that quicksand will slowly suck you under. Because while that is true for wet quicksand, with dry quicksand, usually you just fall into it and it's a really quick process. I made sure to send you guys a video and I'll post this video in the listener page. I did watch this. Of a scientist explaining how dry quicksand is pretty much just sand that has a lot of air in it, a lot of pockets that can't support weight. Yeah. And so when you drop something into dry quicksand, it just schwump falls right through and disappears. This mm-hmm. is the uh, the fire swamp. Exactly. So Finn would be walking along the top of the dune, probably slip, slide down the side of the dune, go right into the quicksand, and then disappear completely mm. in an instant. <gasps> That's how you get those legends of people walking through the desert and then just disappearing. Just vanishing into the... Oh, it sucks. Because yeah. they're basically walking into a hole. <laughs> Do you think that that is what accounts for, like... I, I'm just thinking, like, I've heard I've heard a bunch of stories of, like, people following footprints of other people, and then all of a sudden they're just gone. And, like, it's not that they've been, like, vanished somewhere else, but, like, the ground just wasn't there to support them anymore. Yeah. These dry quicksand spots would basically form wherever there's really fine sand yeah. and a lot of air blowing through, and it just gets blown up and falls in just the right way and then you're in a situation where stuff just falls into it it's really easy to connect it to princess bride Mm -hmm. but while i was watching this it also it it, in um in force awakens when poe and and finn crash on jakku oh that's right their tie fighter gets sucked up into the sand in much the same way and I think that when Ray first meets BB-8, she's telling him, like, don't go that way. The sands will swallow you or something to that effect. Like the desert will eat you up. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that's horrifying, but it's entirely plausible. This isn't like some weird Star Wars thing. Like this just happens in the desert. Yeah. Yeep. It's crazy to think of. And it just, oh. I always thought quicksand like this was like a cartoon thing, like a Looney Tunes thing, but like, yeah, oh, it's scary. It just makes me think that if they treated this dry quicksand like actual dry quicksand, the scene would probably be easier to swallow because as it stands, we're watching this child slowly be consumed by the desert. Where if it was treated more realistically, yes, we'd have to see Savannah running around screaming for Finn, wondering where he went. But at least it would be over a lot faster. The fact that they like linger on the struggle of like trying to save him and then failing that like you get that heavy impact, that like punch of like stuff's not good here. Yeah, it's a huge gut punch. But if he had just like disappeared beneath the surface and like that's it. I don't know. I think in that case, it just, it sort of happens so quick that it's hard to like experience that sympathy or that moment of like, oh my, like this is, this, this is rough. Yeah. This is hard to watch. This is heartbreaking. The other way would be just more spooky, scary. Oh my. Yeah, exactly. It was just, it's just that sort of stunned shock of just like, oh my God. And then it's, he's gone. Yeah. (laughs) Still rough. It is super rough and it's a hell of a downer for the end of the week. Mm. (laughs) happy friday everyone happy friday so let's step away from this minute (laughs) (laughs) gotcha because we have come to the end of this week we get to come back next week and continue this 
crazy quicksand situation, but that's going to be I'm so, so sorry for future us to worry about. For present us, Gary, Victoria, why don't you tell the nice people who've been listening to all of our Harry Potter talk where they can find more of your stuff? We are on DuelingGenre.com where we have two seasons of Harry Potter Minute finished, as well as Ferris Bueller's Minute Off, which uh, we did over the summer of 2017. That feels like so long ago now, but yeah. And uh, we have other projects in the works, but I don't want to talk about them yet because I don't know if they've aired it at the time (laughs) of this recording. But stuff that we're working on, other projects and podcasts. and So go check that out, duelinggenre.com. And then uh, we've talked about the Listener's Army all week, but if you want more of Victoria and I, the best place to reach out to us is the Facebook group Harry Potter Minute and the Listener's Army, where people interact with the show and we share memes and we talk about all sorts of other content in the Harry Potter universe, the video games that have been happening lately the Fantastic Beast movies. So join us over there. Absolutely. And like I said, during season two, when we had Gary and Victoria on the first time, I absolutely endorse the Harry Potter Minute. Definitely go check it out if it's your cup of tea. No. As for us, if <laughs> our tangents and stuff that's not Mad Max haven't driven you insane, we still have our weekend show. Week 24 is a great week, if I may say so. Because Peter's going to save Maggie, Rufio has Hook covered, the pirates are on the run, and to top all of that off, we get to see the start of the showdown between Hook and Pan. It's going to be great, and nothing bad is going to happen. There's nothing tragic about this week of Anarchy Road. It's all cool sword fight stuff, and nothing bad happening to anybody. Yeah, check it out. But if you're not one of the people joining us over on our Patreon, that is absolutely fine. Just come back on Monday because we get to see the conclusion of this whole quicksand situation. And, you know, we are forced, as we've been saying all day today, to say goodbye to one of the group. Womp, womp, womp. It's very sad. It'll be fine, right? They'll save him. They'll pull him back out. Everything's going to be okay. (laughs) Tell me everything's going to be okay. Yep. We're going to retcon the movie and save Finn McCoo. So that way he can go to all of the cool places like Barter Town and and the bombed out Sydney and all that stuff. It'll be great. That's so much. We'll change it. That's hard. That's hard. (laughs) I want to say it's so much better, but, but it's really not, you guys. We'll see you all once we come back from the weekend. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 72 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody!